Blog Talk Radio. Carol Francis here from the Los Angeles area, the South Bay Beach cities areas of Los Angeles. Welcome today. We are right in the midst of talking about child abuse that occurs in West Africa. And we have a person who has been there firsthand as a volunteer to try to help a country, a a very torn and complicated situation, uh, be able to take care of its children and and reduce the the impact of child abuse and other difficulties that face the countries in West Africa. And his name is Dave McDowell, and he is a representative from an organization called Safe Harbor. Hello, Dave. How are you doing today? I'm great, Carol. Thank you. How are you? You know, start us off with a story that you told me earlier today about rescuing a 13-year-old from a family who, or members of a family who actually wanted to do her in in a really very extremely violent way. Walk us into the culture and what you discovered you had to help. Tell, tell us that story. Well, it was a story that uh, was back in 2006 when we had first taken our, our thoughts of taking uh, police officers from the United States and combining them with medical teams for the purpose of doing assessments in Darfur, uh, the region of uh, Sudan that we've heard uh, from all parts of the world and the story of uh, genocide that's happened uh, over the years, two million people uh, mm-hmm. displaced, and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people killed. And we oh, were just wow. on the just on the outskirts of Darfur, um, looking into an area that uh, was reported to be a, a group of people that had just uh, escaped Darfur and had absolutely no supplies. It was 11 miles away, and we would have to walk. It was about 120 degrees, so it was kind of a hastily put together plan to just do an assessment. We had very little medical means with us. In fact, the doctor, Ugandan doctor that we had with us, stayed at our outpost. He had malaria. Um, and we so we had him and one staff member uh, at the camp, and we took off on this 11-mile hike. About halfway into this hike, we saw a large group of, uh, of Arabs uh, approaching us, and they were carrying um, a bed. It was a four-poster bed uh, cot, and we found that there was a 13-year-old girl on this cot uh, wrapped in blankets. Mm. And the story story that unfolded was that um, under Sharia law, which is uh, where this little girl uh, lives with family, extended family, apparently within Sharia law, there's uh, really no limits on the types of abuses that can be given out to to family members. And in this case, the story that was told to us was the 13-year-old girl was being disciplined by her father for not being married yet. Mm. So as atrocious as that sounded, we we needed to assess what had happened to her. He had used a stick, a sharp stick, and basically impaled her uh, in her abdomen. And it had caused all um, a a complete blockage. She wasn't passing uh, any fluids. Oh, my Uh, gosh. And it had already been 24 hours. So, oh my goodness, we we were uh, 
basically without any means of treating her medically on, on the spot, we had a satellite phone. We called back to our doctor uh, who said to have them bring her. Uh, this medical post that we were working at had not been set up yet. The girls that were running it had just arrived in country. So we continued on our walk to assess this larger people group. And the story that occurred was briefly, uh, she made it to the camp, and uh, Dr. Uh, Muku Juventine was able to use some sterile tubing, just a makeshift, you know, doctor in the bush oh. type of situation. And oh. he was able to, um, without going into the graphic details, uh, clear clear her in terms of being able to pass fluids and use uh, the tubing and stabilize her wound and call with the satellite phone that we had at the base uh, for transportation that was to a, a somewhat proficient clinic that was about a two-hour drive on rough roads. The girl actually survived, mm. and then the uh, family that had been with her uh, sequestered her, protected her from the rest of the family, which would have had her killed. So, oh, my goodness. It's how, just amazing how you, to think. Go ahead. How do you hide a child from your father? I mean, how did they do that? You know... It's amazing to watch people in this environment survive. They 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 network very carefully. Well, a good example is how would they even know we were there? We were flown in by a, a missionary plane onto a dirt strip, and it looks like you're in the middle of the moon. I mean, it's totally desolate. We walked about three miles to this small makeshift village where they were selling some limited goods. And other than that, we saw nothing but some people making mud bricks uh, mud and straw bricks, trying to erect some um, places to live uh, out of dirty rivers, and you couldn't you couldn't imagine how anybody could live in these conditions. But these were the people that were surviving the horrors of genocide of Darfur, and these people were just like runners. They would be able to get the word out through walking and running um, to other people that would hear that this group has arrived. So they, of course, they're assuming a lot of help has come. So it's it's heartbreaking wow. to know you don't have what you would like to have there, but whatever you do have is better than what they had the day before, which was nothing. So, Dave, in light of the fact that you have so many stories along these lines about child abuse, about helping families in medical crises, about helping the medical assistants that assistances that go in there, nurses and doctors that go into different parts of, of West Africa region, um, what what is this organization that you're working? Through and what is your role in this organization, and how do people support? How do people help? Well, thanks. My the, my organization I'm working under is called Safe Harbor International. It's based in Orange County, California. Okay. And it was started uh, uh, several years back, and its initial impact and goal and passion was to be an international relief organization, not a large one of, of mm-hmm. those many of us have heard of, but a group of people that had a heart for. You know, reaching people, um, the least, the last, and the lost, as we uh, ended up coining the concept of the places mm. we would go, were so desolate. And um, the existing CEO at the time, back in 2006, knew of my work since the early 90s, going to other countries with um, police officers from the United States through a faith-based group where we were taking officers on vacation and or, I say on vacation, it was not a vacation. They were using their vacation. <laughs> right, the, like the volunteer vacation. I've done a show on volunteer vacations. It's very meaningful, but it is hard work. Hard work. Volunteer that time they could be with their family, and then others who were retired, taking their police skills uh, to a third world country for the purpose of offering for no charge our training to police for a couple reasons. 
uh, foremost to stem the tide of corruption, uh, which we hear of in so many countries. We have it in our own, but we we really don't know what it is until you've been in other countries. When when you have law enforcement agencies that have very little, if anything, and corruption is just a, a natural byproduct. Within, you meet the police, with, within the police department, you mean? Yes, yes, and, and mm-hmm. you know, often in the governments. But when you meet with these young people that are trying to be police and work with their with their communities, you see a you see in their eyes a desire to do the right thing, and they just don't get the training. So mm-hmm. what's really basic to us as U.S. officers, we just share with them, and they just eat it up, and and they want more. So we teach them ethics, we teach them community-oriented policing how to connect with the children in their communities, the business people, um, mm. within their religious context. And they, they know that we are uh, a group of uh, Christian officers that come from the United States that totally respect uh, their beliefs. And we have a, a, a time when we're working with uh, local pastors in a, in a community where, where our officers uh, are able to share their faith on a voluntary basis with uh, the Students that we've trained can voluntarily come to a, a local church service. But beyond that, we train everybody and, and anybody uh, strictly the, the skills that we've learned in the U.S. and take for granted. But the ultimate passion and goal is, is for children because many of these children that have survived the atrocities of seeing their parents killed, mutilated, uh, themselves being uh, raped or forced to see their parents killed in front of them, Post-traumatic stress syndrome, I mean, to say the least. I mean, it's just unimaginable for most of us in the Western world. Kids that are surviving physically, but the emotional trauma is intense. And they're in small towns, in this case, southern Sudan, uh, which recently has become an an independent nation, faced with, you know, an infrastructure that's that's, um, struggling. And then, of course, the police, with any corruption there, a lot of times these kids are re-victimized and they fear the police. So we just saw amazing results as we introduced police to the children of their own communities, took away that fear, um, and then watched them interact. And you just couldn't help but have hope, even though you feel like the tendency is to think, well, how much can we do in such a vast amount of hopelessness? And you, you just have to think of the fact that anything that you can do is better than what, they had the day before, and you never know what an impact that life is going to do to affect hundreds and thousands of others as they grow older. You know, what What I really appreciated when we were talking about, you know, how do you impact a culture, um, I, when, I, when I do appreciate that, you know, while you do come from a faith-based orientation, your primary directive is to be helpful in a way that the, the community wants you to be helpful. But secondly, what you mentioned this morning to me was, that they're they're so enculturated into the belief that it's okay to be abused, it's okay to be treated like um, a, a product or like like you are owned. It's okay for someone to take anger and antagonism out on you, especially with the women and the children. My understanding is um, that since it's so deeply ingrained in their psyche as little kids, they don't really understand a perspective that's alternate to that. And when you said that this morning. It, it really struck a chord that you're walking in there with, with preconceptions uh, of a Western society that's really gung-ho on equal rights and how dare a woman be abused. And even here we have abuses going on. Um, but we at least have a, uh, a, an alternate way of saying, hey, that is not okay. But they're, they don't even necessarily have that self, 
image your self-esteem to fall back on. So what's that like for you to to go there knowing that when you talk about ethics and developing a sound and trustworthy relationship with the community, that's not normative for them. And that doesn't say necessarily anything bad about them. That's just not a conceptualization. So what's that, what's that like to present that? It's um, I've always felt you know, as hard physically and emotionally as many of these trips are, uh, I always have a sense of uh, awe at the privilege of being there, uh, especially once mm-hmm. I get home and realize, yep, I survived. Um, <laughs> That's what nice. yeah. I mean, many times in some of the, well, this cot, for instance, with a 13-year-old being carried, you know, uh, Sudan, uh, in terms of like even biblical history in the Old Testament, I mean, it, it you get goosebumps as you were out in these situations because at times I, I thought I, I could be in biblical times. I mean, th- these places have such historical significance in some of the locations we are along the Nile River and and things are going on that hadn't changed in 2,000 years. Yeah. Um, so reference your question, I, I think one of the things I go in with in terms of this idea of preconceived ideas is, is some, one is a, a universal given of what we can do to communicate anywhere in the world and we found that time after time works and that is usually within minutes when I'm in an area like this I'm it's the grandfather in me I'm, I've got a child in my arms and <laughs> I'm playing with the child and it it, it transcends uh, culture it transcends uh, language barriers and it begins the process of, of starting friendship and the second thing that I, I do is um, and it's not easy. I mean, even with the experience I've had doing it, I'm I'm a westernized American with, as you said, a lot of preconceived ideas of rights. And I'm, not only that, I'm a cop. I mean, think about, you know, <laughs> this concept of right and wrong. And I'm going to go over there and save the world. That's that's not a good idea. It's not going to happen. So I, I yeah. go over there with the idea yeah. of the privilege of entering into this culture and this, other than, you know, holding these children to have an attitude with open arms of learning from them. And yeah. I can guarantee you it's not the issue of, uh, in this case, the, um, the the outright evil in terms of some of the, uh, the rights issue for family members, for women, that are contained within the bad elements of Sharia law that we witnessed firsthand. Uh, all mm-hmm. politics aside, when you see it firsthand, it's, it's hard to make it go away. Yeah. But when you're looking at something as starkly different as that with that of our Western society that's so used to being able to go to a local church and practice Christianity, and I, I look at it and I go, you know, there there is something that's very important that we overlook a lot, and that's that people from any background have a story to tell. And that's to true. respect them and listen to them within the context of their their worldview is extremely important. And it usually starts mm-hmm. with sitting down um, with a cup of chai, with a cup of tea. Mm. And I've I've always been shocked, no matter even in the deepest parts of uh, Darfur that we penetrated, extremely dangerous. Uh, well, it was this 11 mile walk when we found these uh, men and women that were totally stranded. They prepared. The men had a straw mat that they carried with them. Uh, they had a couple of USAID tattered tents that the women and children were in, and it must have been 130 in there. All of them were basically in stages of dying of various diseases. And um, they laid this mat out, and they per- prepared tea for us. Wow. It, it was 
an emotional experience. It was a time of building friendship with them. And, you know, when you when you start from that perspective, it's amazing, you know, what you can do in terms of affecting uh, human life. And and these people appreciated us so much, and wow. they're, they're from a culture that passes things on verbally for hundreds and hundreds of years. And when they said to us, we will never forget that you came out here. It was it was stunning to them that we would walk. Oh. They had no concept that we could do that. And the fact that we did it, they completely honored us with the fact that they said, we will never forget that whether you're ever able to bring medical help, we will never forget um, that you came here. And I walked away realizing three generations from now, they'll tell that story. And that's, wow. that's hard to get your arms around as a Westerner because with our high-tech technology and yeah. Facebook and that's literally going to happen. Um, that's that's when I say you feel a sense of awe to be part of helping in that respect. It's It makes it all worthwhile. You know, it, uh, it, we've had in the last two years, we've watched Twitter, we've watched Facebook, we've watched other social networking, cell phones really have an impact in Egypt and in Syria and uh, you know, so forth and so on, a lot of the, the northern a- African countries it, it, where there's been oppression or there's been dictatorships, et cetera. Well, here you're talking about, you know, Western Europe, Sudan, right? That, um, or Sudan uh, southern, or Sudan? Southern, southern Sudan. Southern Sudan. And they, they don't have access to computers and cell phones and televisions and things of that sort. No. We're talking about a, an extremely different lifeline into uh, finding out what the culture out there is is going to be able to help them. So now, how do people support you, Dave? How do people support this organization or just the process of reaching in there? I know that a lot of the, the actors, George Clooney, for example, have put a, a great press on trying to make sure that we take care of Darfar and, and so forth and so on and not ignore them politically. How do we support the ministries of you as a police officer trying to help the protective agencies of those co- countries come to terms with how valuable they can be to turning the country around to safety for everybody. What do we do? How do we help you? Well, the, the first specific uh, help that we could have now, because we are in a, a stage of growing, is, is simply financial support because we are a nonprofit organization, uh, Safe Harbor is, and we can give our, our website, which is easily, easily followed to a link uh, that allows for credit card or mailing in of checks that are tax deductible. Now, is that one safe, want, safeharborinternational.com? Is that what we're looking at, or safeharbor.us? Or? That's, that's Safe Harbor as a whole, but this specific ministry that we're talking about our, under our training arm of reaching through the police training uh, is through our website, uh, which is simply www.policeoutreach.com. Policeoutreach.com. Okay, thanks. Just, just that simple. And under policeoutreach.com, there's a you can help uh, link right there on the face, uh, on the homepage rather, and it goes directly to Safe Harbor's website, and it's immediately queued up to. Uh, in this case, it's donating to myself, Dave McDowell, but it's for what we call uh, uh, Operation uh, Safe Child, which is basically designed around this whole concept of working with the police and making the community safer for the children. And we're, with uh, additional resources, there are several things we have queued up to do as some larger organizations are doing. And a lot of times we're networking with other groups. There's water drilling projects. 
our medical teams of being able to support getting doctors to locations we're going are all things we've done on a small scale. But what has impressed me with um, Safe Harbor is that they give 100% of our donation directly to the work we're using it for, which is unheard of. So they're raising oh, nice. their own support. Yeah, they're raising their own support for their small administrative fees. So literally 100% is going right to us, and we're literally getting on a plane and going right into these areas. So there's no middle middleman, or and, and those things are necessary for larger organizations. But uh, we're actually taking it right there. So even though we, we kind of consider ourselves small and scrappy and we're doing something that's very unique because you don't see many uh, outreaches that involve law enforcement working with directly with law enforcement and the government. They're usually closed to most um, avenues of approach from standard works. Mm-hmm. We're getting welcomed right in there just by the novelty of what we do and that they're appreciating that we're doing it for no charge. So we're we're small, but we have a huge impact. Um, wow. When we when we had officers um, come into the schools, uh, the school of 700 in Ye, South Sudan, where a lot of the um, people escaping Darfur have resettled, they had never been in a classroom. And mm. the officers were actually afraid because they knew their reputation wasn't wow. good. And these young officers had just been taught community-oriented policing, how to interact with children and have them not be afraid of them. And then we looked at them and said, so let's go and try this out. And they looked at us and thought, do what? I said, yep, we've made contact with a local wow. bishop and he has a school available and we're going to go in teams and we're going to share with them. And <laughs> They weren't too happy. So uh, they did a great job in the classroom, so we said, let's go try this. So we got them in, and they were very rigid, and the students were kind of the same. And uh, here they are. They're the brand-new nation of South Sudan. Um, Hmm. Got them to break the ice a little bit, and within 20 minutes, we could not pull them apart. The kids were laughing. They were asking bold questions, and the officers were, you know, starting to get down on their level. And we looked at oh that and we thought, what an incredible start, because we want that to leapfrog from one small police station, one area of another, to all the way through Sudan. We also work in um, in Uganda, where there's a lot of similar issues, and just continue this training. And our, the whole way we train is to have them train themselves so that the the people that are actually financially supporting us, we don't want them to think we're we're doing kind of a, a shotgun approach where we show up, do a little training, disappear, and then you have, then you say two years later, well, what happened with that? We actually are pulling out the key people we see as we're training them that are, that have the talent to train others. Um, and then as we leave, we know that they're training. We have some contacts on the ground. Um, there's just a, we have one particular person in Ye, South Sudan. He's um, a pastor that works with Youth with a Mission. We've kind of embedded with the police. They're very... Um, supportive of him and he has internet it's limited wow. um, and we're trying to support him a small amount so he can pay for that internet but he gets he gets on communicates with us regularly so we are actually getting updated in an area of the world that basically is almost cut off from communication wow. so it's sometimes it's by kind of a, a thin thread but through that and the consistency of coming back to the same people the excitement of going back now like about three, four times now to the same areas in northern Uganda and southern Sudan with the police and many of the children, and and to see them recognize us uh, has been really, really exciting because no one else is coming to them. Uh, It's just almost non-existent through this type of work. 
You you say something on your website. It's like it says it's hard to explain what it's like to be greeted by so many people living in such absolute desolate conditions. I have never had more of a sense of being cut off from the rest of the world, knowing that even if people wanted to help, most could not receive permission to access the area. The danger of rebel attack from surrounding mountains was constant. The leader of the people in Fena remembered Safe Harbor staff as if they had come the day before. Another cultural attribute of many African people that the Western world could learn more from if they could slow down long enough to begin to understand. So that building the relationship between the officer and the kids, between you and the officers, that is, uh, it, it sounds like that is such a strong post. It's like a, a stabilizing post that goes deep into the ground. And I'm just amazed that they would have that type of memorance or connection with you because it seems like it would be so little in terms of their starvation, their lack of water, the, the, the rape, the molestation, the pillage that goes on, um, the death. It, it just, are you really a, a hope for them that they hold on to and wait for? It, it's just an uncanny thought, really. Well, I have tremendous hope for them in, in the midst of that desolation, and it, it is an honor to be there. I, I, I think, well, the first thing I was thinking, Carol, is you were reminding me as you read that, other people are hearing that for the first time, because when I'm hearing it, I'm there in my mind. And, right. And as, as you were reading that, you know, as being a high-tech police officer with a career in Southern California near Los Angeles, all I could think of was sitting uh, on a straw mat with a cup of tea. Mm and just listening to these people tell their stories. And mm -hmm. it is a tremendous lesson for someone from the West to realize the power that there is in that. Because we we would stop and say, well, what a waste of time. Like, let's get something done. And I go, we're doing it right now, sitting, having some tea. And, and what will they remember the most? Um, there's always the need. But what we, what we don't understand unless we're there is the tremendous strength these people have and even in the midst of the rape and the abuse uh, and the degradation of, of of just the communities, when you when you sit in medical clinics as I have, uh, one it was in Dar in northern Darfur a few years ago. I was looking at all these hundreds and hundreds of kids lined up with their parents, and I watched this um, this woman in her colorful flowing robes, living in this um, internally displaced persons camp bring her two children in, and I looked at her. She was from the Dinka tribe, which is a very tall woman, and mm. she was sitting uh, in this chair waiting about to be seen one more person in front of her by our two doctors, and she was sitting with her back perfectly straight, shoulders raised, and I looked at her eyes, and she sat there in just, she was absolutely beautiful in the midst of this poverty. She had wow. tremendous dig, uh, dignity and pride that she was protecting her children. Wow. 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 Boy, that maternal instinct, huh? Yeah. It was, oh. it, it was, um, it was hard not to, um, you know, break into, into tears just watching them because, uh, you know, on the one end you're looking at them and saying it's so hopeless and then you look at them and look at their eyes and realize they're not hopeless at all. They have this inner strength that they're going to keep surviving. And they don't know what's going to happen the next day. They have no, absolutely no way to, to rely on anything coming to them. 
and it's one day at a time. And so it, it's just, it begins to dawn on you the significance of just the, the privilege you had to be there. Even though it seems like a small thing you're doing, just keep, you know, you just keep going back. And maybe maybe God will raise somebody up that's listening that has financial ability to mm. um, to make something bigger happen. I I've long since not been concerned about that because mm. if it happens, it happens. But I, I just feel honored to go and do the small part we can. But you mentioned the um, the access. It It is one of the more amazing parts of the story. The fact that we even have access in the places we've had, um, many, many large non-governmental organizations are not getting into. And for some reason, the law enforcement connection um, and then the friend, the simple, you know, offering of friendship, which many of the organizations that know what they're doing, they know the value of that. They sit with these people. Mm. But we have been able to get into places that um, and establish works that have been not not done before. Even though we're sometimes surrounded by other works that may be only medical in nature, we have this ability to, you know, attach ourselves to the the threat of the entire community through their law enforcement, through their children, through their community. And bringing that together, uh, that's a powerful networking for a, for a, a, a small startup country uh, that's being attacked on all sides. There's many, many factions that want to undermine the success of South Sudan. And, and in a larger sense, as Americans, we we think, well, why do you want to help someone so far away? And I, and I, I look at that and I realize I wish I could take every American who's never traveled abroad into some places like this to give them more of a world view of the fact that we are a single globe and this world is interconnected, we're no longer able to look as uh, as ourselves as, you know, isolated Americans as if we can just close the doors and not be involved with anybody else in the world. Uh, Sudan is, is a is a hotbed of potential for terrorist training. It always has been. Mm. And these small steps that we're taking to help preserve democracy as they uh, design their democracy and freedom of religion is extremely important to the entire globe. It has huge impact on the United States um, because we don't want to see it's a, it is, Africa's always been a vacuum when when the light shines in one place you know the darkness flees and goes somewhere else but when that light stops it literally is a vacuum and in this case in the history of uh, Sudan you're going to see militant uh, Islamic uh, training camps that sponsor Al-Qaeda terrorists move into the area it's just literal fact and it does not mean that all Muslims are terrorists. I have some dear friends that are Muslims. Um, that's a different story. I mean, but the, the sheer reality of that the evil is there um, is just a fact of life. And these people are extremely proud and excited of being their own country, so that they can combat that themselves. They don't. They don't want that to occur over there in South Sudan. You know, it's interesting to me because you're saying. I think with the terrorists saying, you know, this is a, this is an, a region where whenever when it's isolated, so it's going to be more protected and easier to isolate their own training program without everybody in the West breathing down their neck and saying, no, you can't do that or invading them. Number two, it's an isolated group of people, so they can really have an infiltration of brainwashing, if you will, uh, to, to impact like they they did in lots of parts of Africa. Where you're, or in, in Malaysia, where you you train your soldiers, you kidnap the kids at a very young age, and you brainwash them to how it's great to be a soldier, it's great to be a terrorist. And so th- they have that resource. Secondly, thirdly, 
I would think that terrorist elements would offer more family, more security, more food, more water, uh, often just as a matter of bribe. It might actually be easier to live within the, 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 the gang, so to speak, of the terrorists than it would be to live out on the, the plains and the difficulties of what you're describing. So I can see it would be a hotbed for terrorists just coming in there. So uh, it, it's kind of scary that they would be exposed to that and be so vulnerable to that. And here you come, and th- they're so open to receive what you have. And is it not all that different in their mind? You know, anybody that's going to bring some form of relief is going to be greeted, even if that relief ultimately turns into a brainwashing uh, impact. Well, so, yeah. Yeah. There are, uh, there's so many levels to what you just said that involve what we do. There, there's so much importance on on how we distribute our resources. When we go in and do our training and we do a multifaceted approach of approaching their community as a whole, when uh, let me let me take you to a child, for instance, that maybe uh, was drafted into a scenario just like you said. Okay. The way you described it um, is very true, but in one sense it's almost a little too clean sounding because one of the things you said was that they would okay. be drafted in and then they would be provided with food or safety that they don't necessarily have. Now, it's true to a very limited extent, but here's here's more of a reality, the brutality of this part of the world. Okay. Many of the children that have been kidnapped into human trafficking for the purpose of being, for instance, mm. in the Lord's, Re- Lord's Resistance Army, which um, mm. we've heard of and are tracking down uh, the leader of that group. Uh, these groups pop up and they terrorize children and families. Well, one of the things they've, they've done is they will take uh, these children brainwash them, put guns in their hands, you know, 10, 11 years old, and the first thing they do, the first order of business that they have isn't so much about, wow, I get to eat now. No, they get to murder their parents in front of other oh. children. And if they don't, they chop off an arm. Oh. So there's nothing secure and inviting about that environment. That's what some of these kids have gone through, uh, basically being made, mm-hmm. made an instrument to murder their own parents Absolutely, you know, even if a, even if someone comes up and pulls the trigger in their hand, I'm just unimaginable horror. So when we come in and see some of these children, I hold some of them. A lot of them tell me their story without talking. And of course, it's all being translated 90% of the time from Arabic. Um, wow. I can I can tell from one child to the next many times so much because you look in their eyes and there's a depth of despair and you know that you're holding a child that's probably experienced some of this horror. And mm. and, and a lot of it they are very incapable of relating to you. Uh, it's so deeply embedded in their psyche. They're not they're a long ways from being able to talk about it. But you can mm-hmm. see the flicker of hope in their eyes when they see something being offered that equates to um to hope. And they instantly recognize that. So their next concern is how can I, you know, receive this and then how do I keep it when you leave and that and that's why it's so mm-hmm. vitally important that when we take the funds people give us it, as good as it is to provide medical help and food and we want to do our best to do that with any money that's given to us what's so much more important is to leave an, the beginning of an infrastructure behind where we know that police officers government officials are going to start to protect these children from recapture or re-victimization, that's where their long-term hope is. And without that, um, it's just like giving them a flicker of hope and it's smashed when you leave. We don't want that. We want to go back more than we go. Um, and again, I, you know, I really don't think about the resources that often. I take what we have and we go. But if we do go about right now once a year, um, 
we would go four times a year if if, uh, if we could. And we would go to the same places to accelerate the, the results of what, we, what we've seen. They want us back the next week. It, it's really hard to leave. Uh, we know it's going to be a long time before we get back. It, it's amazing every time we go back because it seems like to them it was yesterday. They Their passage of time in their mind is quite amazing. They remember so well. Um, I forget where my keys are from yesterday. It, it's just <laughs> amazing to me. Their whole culture is in a different uh, pace, and so mm-hmm. they remember things much differently than we do. So we what we never want to do is give them false hope. We never want to tell them that we're going to do such and such and then not be able to do it. So we have to be so careful. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody can't help everybody. You know, we have a lot of people in the United States that give so so generously to so many different things. So I've always told people that hear stories like this, it's, you know, you have to be called to this. You know, if if, if God puts on someone's heart this particular work, then they're going to want to support it. But, you know, God bless them, they're going to be supporting other things that are just as, just as important. But this is my personal story, my personal experience, and mm-hmm. it's um, it's so much different than what you can pull up on Google or see on the Internet. Because, mm-hmm. see, one of the problems we have today is we can see all this instantly in the world and feel like we've, you know, viscerally experienced it, and yet you haven't. If you right. haven't been on the yeah. ground, smelled it, held children, you have not experienced it. You are way more informed than we used to be able to be informed. Yeah. Sometimes it's a disservice because we can kind of, you almost turn it off like the last news heading. Right. How many people think about Darfur now because it's not so much in the news? It didn't, it didn't stop because we quit covering it in the U.S. media. Uh, people that I've seen are still in the same dire straits they were. There's just been mm-hmm. slight progress in the sense that we have a nation now to the south of Sudan, but uh, there's a long ways to go in terms of long-term safety for some of these kids that have, have never known what it is to be safe. Well, you, you know, and then, you know, you know what I'm puzzling over, Dave, is that I know that, again, your website is policeoutreach.com. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is I want people to contact you. I want people to donate. I want people to support, um, you know, so policeoutreach.com. But in addition, I'm repeating that because you're saying that you want to help gird up the the uh, police protective services that are there. But the truth is, is that those police are also the ones that are easily bribed by the terrorists. Or they're the ones that can go around and realize that they can get ahead by using their own forms of in, uh, intimidation or or having to be paid a certain amount of money and so, so that they're not so that the families or the kids are not harassed or raped i mean I, I mean I don't really want to portray people you've established a relationship in a bad light, but I would think that some of what I'm saying is not too far reaching you have a picture a third down on your, your home page of you standing in your your beautiful western uh a day a business where and they're sitting around in a, a table it looks like a conference table in their outfits and I, i'm thinking which of those officers there are saying yes i want to walk in my integrity i want to listen to this i want to take it in i want to protect my community and which of them are just there because oh they were told to be and, and inside they're thinking oh, when's my next take where's my money going to come from Who, who's the next person i'm going to threaten uh, you know, we have these things in our own police uh, um, here in the U.S. where we have to watch out. Excuse me, because you're not one of them. No. But it's true. <laughs> oh, 
Well, thanks. You're right. I'm not one of them, but, um, you know, I was a police sergeant and had a 25-year career, and I did internal affair investigations, and I can, you know, we have stories. I, I'm glad to say it's it's rare, but in terms of the number of officers, but, you know, we have stories right here where we have officers decide that they're going to be corrupt and do the wrong thing. And I look at our history as, a, as the United States, the East Coast. I mean, where a lot of our gangs started and um, cops that worked with gangs and owned street corners and and we've, we've got quite a history there, too. Nothing to the degree of what you see in some third world countries, but from the same um, perspective, how did we get rid of the vast majority of that in our country over the years, even though we still are long ways from perfect? We, um, we added and continued with professional training. And one thing that we have here that people take for granted as much as you get negative on news media about police because you know nobody puts story well not always never but usually you don't see a story on the news that's saying something good about right. the police you know yeah. bad. so um they you know basically want perfection but what we've done is we've done two things we've given professional training over the years and continue to do that and the other thing that we've done is um in school and children grow up, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And a lot of times you're a fireman or a policeman. We take that totally for granted. You never mm-hmm. hear that in third world countries. Uh, they they don't want to be a police officer. That scares them to death. There's not mm-hmm. the respect for the position because it doesn't have that connotation. Right. That can be changed just like it was in the U.S., uh, we attack the corruption. Over there you attack the perception of what it is to be a policeman that is something to be proud of. And one of the things we're dovetailing in right now with South Sudan, I can't I can't even put into words how excited they are about their country. They have fought and lost thousands and thousands of lives to get to where they're at and did it without mm-hmm. guns, basically. They, they were no match for the North. It was world political pressure, and then basically a dictator's decision to decide that if, you know, I don't at least go this route, I'm going to get ousted out of here. But he still has a complete interest, and this is President Bashir in the North, of destabilizing the South, and it's over oil, which predominantly it is. It's in the South, piped up to the North. Uh, it is racial. It's um, uh, Arab Muslims versus black Muslims. It's racist. And it's also persecution of Christianity. All those three things are involved in what eventually turned into uh, Darfur. And we thought that we were done with it with Rwanda. You know, we've had political Mm. statements to say never again. Well, (laughs) careful before you say that. It can happen. So, you know, specifically what we're talking about is one officer at a time. And and percentage-wise, like when we were in these rooms with these officers, I I felt like 70% of the people there easily wanted to do the right thing, mm. knowing not being naive full well. There's some older guys in there that are going to be going out and probably doing the bribe thing mm. and realize that even with them, you know, one step at a time, they're going to want to do something different. But you mm. got to, it's a slow process because when you, you're in a place where you have nothing, um, it becomes a way of life uh, to take from people. You say here, our approach is unique and our mission is clear. Our team seek to bring relief and assistance to children and orphans in southern Sudan and northern Uganda. With the effect of genocide in Darfur, Sudan has many needs for orphanages, medical aid, clean water, and schools. Uh, uh, Then you also say our unique work of providing training to police officers 
and governmental officials in areas such as ethics, officer safety, that's interesting, and child protection programs are one of several ways we change the lives of children who need love, support, care, and education. Through our concept of training the trainers, we are improving how those in position of authority can carry on the work themselves while we are back in the United States. Oh, it's a big task, Dave. It is. We're doing it with very little. <laughs> I kind of laugh sometimes. I mean every word of that, and I've seen I've seen it all happening. But I just go home sometimes and just throw my hands up. I'm going, oh my gosh, yeah. you know. But I, I don't even think I have a grasp of the of the context of what is actually happening over there in terms of the benefit because it, it's hard to measure. I I just. I just know it's worthwhile. I, I, I This thing comes into mind all the time because the United States is so large and there's so many things to help with. Um, I used to get frustrated when I looked at certain people or organizations that had so much money and mm-hmm. thought of what we could do with it. And I, I, I realized how you know useless that was to have that thinking because um, it's just more important to do what you're called to do and, and let the rest take care of itself. But you know, our goal is to do what we do is as well as we can with quality and ethically. Uh, I'm excited to be part of a, I, I don't know if this will last forever, but uh, with a small group like Safe Harbor to see that 100% of a donation goes to the work. I mean, that's nice. and, and that's not meaning the people that can't do that are wrong. They, when a large organization has a lot of costs involved with staff and whatnot, of course they have to have percentages held back to, to do that. But to see a group starting like this with that goal, first off it tells me you know they're in the they've got the right reason for going. They they want to get as much out there as possible to help the people. They're not doing it uh, for themselves. It's not a career for them mm-hmm. in terms of uh, financial gain. They're taking what's given to them and giving it to people that need it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's been um, a tremendous you know life experience for me and the people that we've taken over. I've seen so many people, officers, medical personnel. Uh, lay people go over there and, and literally change their life as they come back to the United States because it mm-hmm. does have an impact on us on how we view our country and how we mm-hmm. can help people here because we we have much more appreciation for what we have we become less critical. Mm. That's interesting. I think yeah I think that helps us to be more uh, better agents of change in our own country because when we get bogged down criticizing everything. Oh yeah. Well, it's hard. Yeah, you can't be helping the situation while you're criticizing. Oh gosh, no. I've been trying to learn that all my life. <laughs> In varying stages of success. <laughs> yeah, problem solving and not taking things for granted. It's it, it, uh, it, it, wow. It just it, you say here, as a director of international police training and outreach for Safe Harbor International, this work is definitely not about me. It cannot be done without the expertise of those who make up our team. Our teams are made up of police officers, chaplains, nurses, and doctors. Uh, you you send them out. People who are listening to this, you can volunteer. Contact Dave McDowell. Contact him through policeoutreach.com. How else can they contact you, Dave? I'm more than happy to have people call me direct. My cell is open to the world. I'll give you my cell phone. Okay. It's uh, 541-390-2891. And do it again. <laughs> yeah, 541 390 Nine one. Do you, um, in in the effort of making a, a change to having an impact, uh, do you do you? I'm looking at these pictures of these little children with this teacher. 
I'm seeing the girls dressed one way and the boys dressed another, and they look so innocent and cheerful and well taken care of. And I'm thinking, how many of those children have already seen tremendous violence and massacre? How many of those children are destined to being raped and impregnated? How how many of them will survive with with whatever starvation or medical complications? So, if do do, do you think about the individual children that you've held and touched and and wonder their destiny as well as their past? Oh, well, a lot of times. And the answers are varied to that in those pictures. I'm not seeing what you're looking at, but on my website, it varies. I mean, we have, um, well, let's just start from another extreme. Amuku uh, Juventine, my dear friend, Dr. Juventine. His wife is also a doctor, Elizabeth. Mm. They're Ugandan. Uh, they very well grew up as uh children from from poor homes i actually i don't really know but i the odds are good that they came from fairly modest means if not poor and eventually became doctors helping hundreds of thousands of people in their country and the neighboring country um i i tend it's too overwhelming for me to be honest carol to look at all those kids in terms of Mm. how many of them may never have a chance or not be re-victimized, uh, even as a police officer, and I I combat this macho police image thing, because I always tell officers that when we did debriefs on different calls when I was a supervisor, I mean, anything to do with children would break through to any police officer, or, or he didn't pass his psych test, because, you know, that would break us down to the common denominator of, you know, our emotions. We could... We could put that tough exterior on when we were dealing with homicides and different crimes, and and it has its toll on you. But when it came to children, we were pretty much on the same playing field. Oh, fascinating. And, and I and I did child abuse, domestic violence uh, specifically. Mm. Was a court appointed expert for a couple of years. Wow. And you know those those cases tear your heart apart. So, uh, tear your heart apart. So when I'm in these countries, it's the same thing. I look at that, and I I can't focus on that. What I what I tend to focus on is every child I look at, I go. You could be, you could be one that becomes another doctor, Juventine, or you could oh. be one that becomes a social worker, or someone who runs for political office, or becomes a police officer in a in a totally different police atmosphere than it was two years ago, and and that gives me hope. And you know, wow. I know I'm on the same level with them because that's the hope they have. Seriously, uh, they have that vision. Yeah, they do. They the vision wow. they have. It, and this is part of what puts me to shame when I come home to the states. Wow! You know, I'm I'm unabashedly uh, a conservative, um, not necessarily <laughs> Republican, maybe you know, independent, but I'm a conservative <laughs> guy. You know, okay. and some of my best friends are liberal. And uh, I come back to the United States and I see what goes on, and the the pettiness of our arguments, and uh, you know, not getting together on solving our, our problems in the United States. It, such as they do not compare to some of these other countries. And then I and then I go and I look at these people with nothing, every reason in the world to believe they have no future. And they have more, many times, vision, hope, and uh, dignity, as I thought of that mom in that clinic, than most people I know in the United States. Wow. And, and that tells me that, yes, we are in an entitlement society, unfortunately, uh. for our children. Gee, yeah, that strikes a chord, doesn't it? Yeah. Both of us have children, and 
you know, bless their hearts, they it's a handicap. They they come yeah. through police officers that are starting out on police work. Uh, when I was before I retired, I was seeing um, nothing wrong with living with your parents, but there's living with your parents and there's living with your parents. Uh, you know, these are <laughs> kids that are new police officers living at home and they're going to domestic violence calls. Mm-hmm. And it's like if there's an entitlement issue going on, it's like they have a lot to overcome because they're they're not experiencing what the rest of the world experiences. And the way uh, our political climate is and the world as a whole, there's a need to start getting on board with what's going on with the rest of of the people. And this uh, it's not about me statement is, is very true for us as Americans. It's, hey, it's not about us. We're not alone. And there are other people in the world that would very much like to have everything we have and would appreciate it so much more. And mm-hmm. I have... I have immigrant stories working in an area that was predominantly Vietnamese in my police career, of people that grew up that became personal friends of mine that excelled in positions. Uh, one friend of mine is is, uh, is the policy writer for our Secretary of Defense, travels mm. to Asia. Mm. He, he used to swim in my swimming pool and um, with my mm. girls, and he mm. loves my country. He loves his country. His parents sacrificed uh, to get him there, mm. and so our kids need to—they need to meet kids like that and understand mm. that there are people that have a true appreciation for what we have here, and that starts to give you more of an idea of of why we have hope to go to another country. Mm-hmm. I, I do. I, I guess I kind of start to bristle now when I hear the kind of isolationist talk. Why do you go help them when we need so much help? And I feel like saying, "Who are we?" You know, we are them, you know? Yeah. I mean, oh, wow. if, if you want to work with people from other countries, just go to different parts of your community. We're, they're all here. I mean, we are all Americans, and uh, there, there needs to, we need to stop doing that. It's, it's, um, fortunately, a lot of people do understand that and fully embrace other cultures, and it enriches you uh, to learn from other cultures. And we always leave these trips in the midst of the poverty learning more than we were able able to teach. It never ceases to amaze me, especially the police training, because they they fit it into their cultural setting. And Mm. it's just, it's entertaining sometimes to watch how they'll enter it into tribal relations. They'll take something that was purely an American training section and totally integrate it into their tribal situation and and, uh, have that affect the outcome when we do their little scenarios we put them through. And we sit there and just marvel because we can't teach that. Mm. We don't even we don't know that, and they teach themselves. Mm. Uh, it's uh, it's it's really a lot of uh, a lot of fun to watch them do that. Yeah. I'm also looking at uh, your blog spot. Let me tell everybody what, how to get there. It's sgtdaves.blogspot.com. That's sgt as in sergeant. Yes, D A V E S. So sergeant Dave's dot blogspot.com and that's also connected to your primary website which is the policeoutrage.com and in there you're you're indicating that uh the date that's set sometime between september 15th october 5th 2013 you're hoping to be able to go back with a team how how many days do they commit to this how much how expensive might it be for people who want to volunteer dave I can answer most of that. Um, 
Okay. The, the dates are somewhat in stone. I don't have them in front of me, but just uh, it's on the website actually, and we are looking at those dates. It's a three-week period into September and October. So September fifteenth um, through to October fifth is what you found Oh, you're here. so good. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Two thousand. Uh, yes, those are the dates, and that is picked specifically for climate in that part Ooh. of the world. It's nice. uh, if you go at the wrong time, it can be extremely hot and humid. It's always going to be hot. And we have to avoid some of the rainy season so that we can get where we need to get on roads. It's uh, all very challenging. But um, we're in the midst of uh, ascertaining how we're going to deal with this team. I'm getting more interest from police officers. Uh, interviewed uh, two, a, a surgeon and a general practice doctor last night. Um, it's exciting, but we're starting to realize with the uh, request to do a medical outreach in a very remote part of eastern mm-hmm. equatorial South Sudan, which is a day's drive further than the remote area of Ye Sudan, that we may um, do a, a two-team approach where we will, I would be participating with both teams, but maybe have one team of officers training in two spots and have doctors working in another spot. So uh, a lot of logistics go into this. It's a, it's a huge undertaking because one of the things we stress um, is safety. And because there's, no doubt about it, and part of the application process is we let everybody know this is extremely dangerous. Uh, we go everywhere, and the State Department says you shouldn't go there. <laughs> oh, wow. So um, there's nothing safe about these locations. However, we have a lot of intel on the ground through the nationals we work with that are totally trusted, um, and we we get frequent updates. Even as we're traveling and hit the ground, we know what's going on, and we're not looking for problem areas. We're We're looking to do our work uh, to keep our team safe. In essence, when you think about it, working uh, with a group uh, such as a police department actually has its benefits because mm-hmm. we, um, we we kind of travel with protection built in, uh, so that part's good. We have a loose connection at times with the United Nations, and a lot of times they prove very helpful for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we let them know what we're doing. We, we work um, with them in one important respect, and that is mm-hmm. they have a a general plan for the entire country of Sudan and their police training. Mm-hmm. And I was working with a Canadian uh, UN-assigned gentleman in Ye, South Sudan, on our last trip. I uh, made an appointment with him and wanted them absolutely to understand that we wanted to supplement and enhance what they're doing. Uh, we, yes, we're a faith-based group, but explain how we go about doing our training, which is very much not proselytizing. We train anyone and everyone, and then they are asked uh, or given an opportunity to come uh, to a service with local pastors, they don't have to. We 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 have a huge attendance because they're they're so curious and thankful. They want to come, but we totally respect uh, their backgrounds and beliefs and befriend all of them and keep those friendships going. The UN was um, at least through this particular commander was extremely excited, and I was um, very happy to hear this report from him. He said, our problem is we have all sorts of various organizations, some Christian, some not, They come into the country, and so often they do their training, and they don't contact us. And, you know, despite the pros and cons sometimes of the effectiveness of the UN in some areas, the people we've met on the ground, so many of them, a lot of them are from various African countries, just have tremendous hearts to do the right thing, and they love these people. Um, like any large organization, administratively there can be issues, but we de- we decided to go right to that administration on the local level and say, this is what we're doing, is there anything that you're concerned about? 
And they were dumbfounded because they said, no one's ever asked us before. <laughs> wow. So they were they were extremely helpful. They they have their restrictions. They can't, you know, pull us in under the fold of the UN and you know, for financial help or accommodations and we're fine because we're self contained. We know where we're going, what we're expecting to have for accommodations and we're we're good with that. So um we feel real good about that because we don't want to get involved in a in a conflict with various groups trying to help and stepping over each other. We want to be able to leave and say that whoever comes after or before us is going to not do anything but benefit from what we've been able to do in the community. Oh, that is well said. Okay, so you're saying we will be training officers and command staff in both countries on topics such as ethics, community-oriented policing, defensive tactics, crime scene investigation, the effective use of police chaplains, serving officers, their families, and the community. Then you also say that you'll be going into Yates, South Sudan, uh, connecting with the people that uh, open up their churches or their community, dealing with children. And be, oh, there's a ministry, a radio broadcast ministry as well. You also say that uh, you're going to be working, hopefully, it sounds like you're hoping they'll be able to go into, through Pastor Augustine and providing some medical assistance through a mobile medical outreach that will go two to three days just just to help out these very remote areas. And you describe these areas where no no man has gone before sort of uh, idea. These are really extremely amazing opportunities for people who are adventurous, want to help, want to volunteer, want to be of assistance, want to understand from a firsthand experience. And those of us that can't mm-hmm. go or won't go for what various reasons you know, financial impact of financial services can be of tremendous help to everybody that's going to go there. You you never know where your dollar is going to have the greatest impact. But I know Dave McDowell. I will vouch for him. I've known him for decades. Oh my gosh, I don't even say how many decades. And uh, that don't. he he's a man of ethics and uh, uh, a man of heart. That he he's going to make your dollar and your prayers and your actual physical service go a long way, as long as he can make it. Um, Thank you so much, Dave, for sharing with uh, us this heartfelt message. I hope I can help it go far, 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 so we can help children and and adults help themselves. Anything else you'd like to say as a summary? Just uh, say we thank you, and Nancy, my wife, and I love you to death, and you've been such a (laughs) blessing to everything we're trying to do, and... um, and anybody out there that hears this, uh, other than just uh, obviously the financial need, we really want to encourage that we we love starting relationships with people uh, to connect with them, uh, just as far as communication and updates, not not bombarding you, but just to really try to connect you with the. And this is aside from whether or not someone's able to financially donate, but we would like them to know that we, if they're interested, connect them as much as we can with the personal stories of what we do so that it kind of puts a face to some of the things that are happening on the ground in parts of the world that we sometimes hear on the news and then forget. So we uh, we take that seriously. We're passionate about it, and uh, it can be enriching for others as they um, learn and interpret how that can affect their lives here in the United States. And, Dave, you're also a great public speaker, so any organization would like to have some interesting stories, inspirational night, moving people into understanding more about the world, don't hesitate to contact Dave McDowell. And, again, your phone number is? 
541-390-2891. And your main web page is? www.policeoutreach.com. And your blog. You'll have to give it. And let's confess, <laughs> I have stories there, so everybody out there that hears this, subscribe to the blog and send me a note because I, I tend not to get over there like I should because it's a great tool. <laughs> okay, and Sergeant it's got Dave. Running. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Sergeant Dave uh, at dot blogspot.com. So Sergeant Dave, so it's S-G-T-D-A-V-E-S dot blogspot.com. I We're going to get you in that. gear. <laughs> well, right. you know, that, that blog is great because it also has running ads, not ads, but current event news media news feeds on what's going on in uh, Sudan. It's actually yeah, a great that. reference to go to. It's live. I know. I saw that. That's great. Dave, thank you. You're awesome. Thank you, Carol. Thanks we'll so much. We'll talk to you later. Listeners, let it go deep to your heart. You have so much to offer, and I so much appreciate Dave sharing what he has to offer as well. Take care. Make your life happen. Make your life happen for your own benefit and for the benefit of all those around you. We have one life to live that we know of. We might as well make it awesomely impactful. Have a great day.